Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Last week, our family went for a day trip to see my mother-in-law down in Lebanon County, and we wanted to do so before the election fallout had occurred, and uh, we had a lovely visit with her. Uh, she's doing really well. Uh, she's in her upper 70s, and uh, by all appearances, doing still remarkably well. Very thankful for that. Uh, but on the way home, we stopped at a Chick-fil-A in Wilkes-Barre. Uh, maybe you've gotten over there, I don't know, but uh, after we uh, got back up on the highway about 30 minutes uh, from home, I heard from the back seat, i got to go to the bathroom. Now, I tend to be a very unsympathetic driver. Do you have any of those in your home? Uh, so I asked, do you think we can make it to Mount Cobb? And uh, they thought, okay, well, we can make it to Mount Cobb. So you know what I asked when we got to Mount Cobb? <laughs> Do you think we can make it home? And uh, they all looked around, and they could visualize where they were. And so they said with hopefulness, yes, I think, I think we can make it home. So why do you think that they could make it home? Why might it be? It was because they were starting to see familiar sights. They were starting to be able to know that they were getting closer to home. And their ability to visualize relief outweighed the pain that they were experiencing. They weren't home yet, but their faith in future rest and relief was causing them to be in control of their bodies and endure suffering. Now, next time, they're going to tell me, Dad, can we just stop and not be a sermon illustration? <laughs> and I will probably still be an unsympathetic driver. But faith is the capacity to see with the heart that which has not yet come so as to be able to endure hardship, pain, and suffering because you see the coming promised rest. And you do so because you have a love and a loyalty to Jesus Christ. In the text that we're going to read in just a moment, the scriptures that we'll be examining, verse 22 holds the key that helps us to interpret some applications that we see starting to develop. In verse 22, please just look at this phrase. It says, and let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. A true faith, excuse me, a true heart. Notice the, the word true is addended, it's added to the word heart. That's a very important phrase because we all have a heart, but not all of us have a true heart. A false heart is an unconverted heart. It is not a true heart. 
It doesn't have the eyes to see to anticipate the coming of the Lord and make the necessary sacrifices to live faithfully before the Lord. You know, in our Western world, we associate the heart with emotions, with feelings, and love, and Valentine's Day. But when the Bible talks about the heart, it refers to the very center of our being, where we reason, where we think, where we make decisions and plans. Now, when the Bible talks about that true heart, it's talking about a new principle that has been added into your being, provided you by the Holy Spirit, so that your reasoning, your thinking, your decision-making, your planning are now carried out as a new, true, converted being. So when we talk about the heart here, we're talking about who you really are as a person based upon the kinds of decisions and plans that you make. If you're truly born again, you'll have a new outlook that will incorporate spiritual sight. You're going to be able to see Jesus, the Son of God, ruling right now. Ruling right now over this earth. And you have the complete and full expectation that one day you will see him again. Why is that? Because you can fully see you will be fully persuaded. You will have full assurance of faith. Your heart knows that he's coming again. And that's why you're loyal to him. That's why you endure suffering. Because you know with your heart, your inner being, that he's living and he's coming again. Now the applications in this text are referencing actually spiritual disciplines that are essential for our faith. And these spiritual disciplines that I'm going to unpack for us, there are four of them, are going to be a challenge to us as Americans. Because we tend to value self-sufficiency and privacy. But these spiritual disciplines are essential for our faith. If we want to have a true heart, if we want to live for Christ and have the strength that comes from that, we need to take these spiritual disciplines with all seriousness. You know, when God gave his word, he did not give it to a particular culture. He gave it to no particular ethnicity. He gave it to instruct all nations, all cultures. And so there are times where we have to battle the instincts that we have grown up with as Americans and submit those to King Jesus. And so this morning as we work through this text, it's important for us to realize that a true heart, a true heart will prioritize these spiritual disciplines. And the first one that we're going to look at, I'm going to read the text, I'm going to read it kind of verse by verse this morning. The first is that faith finds its assurance in the actions of Jesus, verses 19 to 21. Therefore, brothers... 
since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, we want to finish the sentence, don't we? But this is the the foundation for all that follows. What we're hearing in these verses is a description of a confidence to enter into the holy place. Do you remember the holy place from earlier discussions in the book of Hebrews? It was a place that was quartered off. No natural light entered into that room. It was dark, except for the illumination of the menorah. There was an offering table of incense. There was showbread. It was dangerous to enter this room unauthorized, and even more dangerous to go through the curtain into the most holy place. No one but the priest was supposed to go into that place. It would be a, a remarkable a remarkable thing if someone would actually go in there unauthorized. No one should have had the confidence to go in there unauthorized. And in the history of Israel, there was a king whose privilege and arrogance actually caused him to think that he could go into that unauthorized. He simply usurped the office of the priest, and his name was King Uzziah. King Uzziah. He had been a very successful king, He had enlarged the territory of Israel to include the traditional Philistine cities. Neighboring nations began to pay tribute to him for protection. His fame had spread all the way to Egypt. He had built towers in Jerusalem, defensive towers in the wilderness. He had thousands and thousands of cattle. He had thousands and thousands in his military. He even had invented catapults to sit on the, on the parapets of the city walls to throw large spears and hurl rocks. That was cutting-edge technology in his day, and it made him very proud. And he entered into the holy place and began to burn incense. You can read about it in Second Chronicles 28. The high priest, seeing what was happening summoned 80 other priests with drawn sword and entered into the holy place and confronted him and said, what are you doing entering into the holy place? And Uzziah became angry. And as his anger flared, something else flared, leprosy broke out upon his, on his face. And the priests recognized the hand of judgment upon him for entering in there And I bring this up to to think about that word confidence. Pride, you know, causes us to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. But did you know that pride can also cause us to think less of God? This is what I mean. Pride will cause us to neglect the blood of Jesus Christ and we stay outside the curtain of relationship with God. 
Pride causes us to keep distance from God. He has invited us into relationship with him, but pride can actually cause us to say, I don't want to. And in this text, we're told that we ought to have the confidence in the blood of Jesus Christ. Verse 19 says this clearly. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's not confidence in self. It's eyes looking outward. Confidence in the blood of Jesus Christ. You know, there are some people who are proud and they try to enter into God's presence with their own blood. But then there are some whose pride causes them to stand outside, not trusting the blood of Christ. They don't rely on the blood of Christ because it's freely available to them. They can't wrap their head around the fact that they have nothing to bring to the presence of Christ. They stand aloof and they give the appearance of a relationship with God. They attend services maybe. But they don't engage with God. They enjoy the moral lessons of a sermon, but they're not close to God. He's barely in their thoughts day by day. They might have a false sense of humility which says, I'm not worthy to enter into his presence. And that's as far as they go. They don't. I've had conversation with people who stumble on this point. And they're hesitant to actually take the step of faith and rest in the blood of Jesus Christ. They say, well, that's just too much for me to wrap my head around. I just, I just, I'm not a theologian. I just don't, I don't go there. But what they're doing is saying, I don't want to go there. And this is, I say, a spiritual discipline because it's critical. It's critical. You don't get this foundational spiritual discipline. It's like the domino You've got to hit the first domino to send the others moving. If you don't learn to rely on the actions of Christ for your salvation, you will not learn to rely upon him day by day. It's a spiritual discipline to go back to the gospel and recount the glories of the blood of Jesus Christ. You need the blood of Jesus Christ. You have nothing in your hand to bring. You simply cling to his cross. That's the first. It's primary. It's important. Important spiritual discipline. And I pray that as I'm preaching that people would be hearing and cling to the blood of Christ. The second here in this text I see comes in the last half of that sentence that I started and didn't finish, verse 22 and 23. I believe you can see that faith finds its assurance in the confession of sin. Look at verse um, 22. It says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Now, when the Holy Spirit entered into our hearts, 
He sprinkled the blood of Jesus Christ upon us so that when God looks at us, he sees us as being pure. And there's an allusion here in this text to the water and the, what the water baptism points to is the purity that's created in God's eyes. And on the basis of the blood of Christ, we're encouraged in this text to draw near. We're encouraged to, to draw closer. Now, experientially, we live in a world that is so contaminated by sin. I don't know any bride who wears her wedding dress out into the marketplace of life on a continual daily basis. I mean, I don't think there would be any bride that would have worn her dress out in public prior to the day. Why? Because it would get contaminated. We live, we live in a world that's so contaminated. And when Christians do sin because we live in this world, you know what we experience? We, we, we sense that we are, we are distant from God, don't we? Distance is perspective. Christians who do sin are not cast out of God's presence, but we feel like it. We feel like we are outside of God's presence. But that's the subjective nature of assurance. No one can pluck you out of the Father's hand, but you do lack assurance. And you should lack assurance. There should be nothing more disquieting in the heart than unconfessed sin. It should cause you to have mental instability. You know, there are two equal and opposite errors that we often encounter when we think about sin as Christians, and, and, and Satan wants us not to think properly about sin. He wants us not to even understand how it relates to the gospel and live our lives in utter confusion. There are some people who think that once you've confessed your sin and turned to Christ, you no longer have to confess your sins. You no longer have to seek forgiveness. Now, I have heard this from some, but that's not true. Because it creates the potential for a hardness of the heart that when you do encounter sin and we do sin... What happens is we potentially may create a, a carnalness, a hardness, that results in more lawlessness. And 1 John 1, verse 8 says this. If we confess our, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now the Apostle John wrote this uh, and it's a complementary text to what I believe is the undercurrent of Hebrews. And he uses the collective word sin here. It's collective. It's saying, you know, if a person says that they, you know, the sin nature is completely eradicated, they actually don't have a full understanding of who they really are yet. And when we come to Christ, God does see us as redeemed. He sees us as being purified ultimately he also sees us in a process of being purified but we're still sinners that's an error and the second one is like to it there are some people 
who think that you perpetually lose your salvation when you sin. In 1 John 1 verse 9, the next verse, the apostle says, that's not so. He has the answer to that error. He says that if we confess our sins, notice it's plural, because it's talking about individual sins, not our whole sin nature. And he says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the apostle here is describing um, the rift that we feel. The rift that we feel when we sin, that we are outside and God is distant. But God has not moved away from us. We have moved away from him. And we need to be careful that we do not distort the truths of the gospel to avoid the personal responsibility that when we do sin as Christians, the responsibility that we have is we ought to be confessing our sins when we do sin. This is a spiritual discipline. It's based upon the foundation of the gospel itself, that first domino we as Christians still sin and we still need to take our sins to him knowing he graciously, willingly wants to forgive us of our sins. Draw us into sweet fellowship with him. You see, sin tries to break down community. It causes us to be isolated. Sin wants to be unknown. We don't want it. The embarrassment of sin. But you know, in the confession of sin, the light of the gospel breaks in upon darkness and seclusion. Sin has to be brought to the light. In the confession of sins, like, like not, not, not just like, oh Lord, I know that I have, or if I have any sins in my life. If we're not specific in targeting the identification of a particular sin that we have committed... We're not confessing sin. It's painful. The old man dies a painful and shameful death when we confess sin. But you know something that's missing? Often in our confessions, we don't confess our sins to other people. That's even more painful. Bearing the burdens of one another is how we fulfill the law of Christ. We need to tell and confess our sins to one another. It's not a requirement of the gospel to, you know, like have a confessional like a room. That's not what I'm saying. But there is a sense in which there is a spiritual discipline that self-forgiveness cannot accomplish. It doesn't put sin out into the open. It doesn't expose it. It doesn't let the light shine in. And bearing one another burdens, and I can't develop this fully, but Galatians 6 actually is about the spiritual helping the weaker with their sins. And I see in this text, the drawing near with a true heart requires us to be in the habit of confessing sins. 
We have to do this or else we will not be exercising, we will not have any meaningful assurance. A third this morning comes from verse 24. The third discipline that I want us to see comes from verse 24. In verse 24, it says, And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and to good works. Faith finds its assurance in the shepherding of one another. Shepherding one another? Wait, isn't that the pastor's job? I didn't sign up for that. Yes, loved ones. It's your job to shepherd one another. Yeah, it's a major calling, a piece of my personal gifting, but we are called to be our brother's keeper. Remember what Cain said when the Lord came to him? Cain said, am I my brother's keeper? Yeah. We are called to love our neighbor as ourselves. And do we... Do this if we don't engage with our brother. We can't. To do this properly, to look out for one another's blind spots, and because we all have them, we need to know one another. Speaking the truth is never easy. But a person who risks relationship because they love someone enough to tell them the truth, is a real hero. You know that the road to hell is paved by the avoidance of compassionate conversations? But I'll lose my future ability to have relationship with them. Not if you're genuinely compassionate. If your tone and your approach is such that you're saying, I love you, as I tell you this? See, faith is not navel-gazing, just looking introspectively as an isolated individual faith. It's looking away from oneself, finding meaningful relationship with others. Shepherding one another is a spiritual discipline in that we must first examine our own hearts before we speak to one another. You know, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount did not tell us to avoid having conversations with people for fear that we might have a beam in our eye. He actually was telling us, take the beam out of your eye so you can have conversations with people. And that's why it's a spiritual discipline. Because if you're going to be able to speak to other people, you have to be continually examining your heart. You have to be continually understanding the darkness and the lies that you, and the blind spots, you have to keep examining. We just have to be careful that we're not being hypocritical. We need to have conversations. In Hebrews 3, you have to reach back a little bit in our time in the book of Hebrews, but in Hebrews chapter 3, we are told the importance of exhorting one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Shepherding one another is a spiritual discipline that requires you to be watchful of your own heart. 
It requires you to be an active member in a church. You shouldn't be sitting on the sidelines and merely attending. You should be engaging in relationship and not being satisfied with your individual religion. Our society, and I'm going to, we're going we're gonna to enter into a phase in American culture where you think it's hard to speak now about your faith in public. It's going to increase. I lived most of my life in Canada, and the Canadian church has no verbal witness in public. They can't speak about abortion. They can't speak about hardly anything of any moral substance. And I fear our American church may drift into the same trajectory because we don't take seriously the need to exhort. Exhort one another. Our culture wants us to think that we are being uncompassionate and unloving if we potentially might make someone uncomfortable about a sin that they are committing. We have to be careful that we communicate with compassion. Sorry, that was not on my script. God does not call Christians to be islands. God is calling us to be a people, a collective people, a nation of people who are identified not only by their attendance, but by their commitment to love one another with difficult conversations, to stir one another up to good works. I don't want to stir the pot, people will say, but the Bible is telling us to stir the pot. And throughout church history, this approach has often looked different about being connected into a church family. But I want, you to, I want to warn you, when churches downplay meaningful membership, the quantity of people may rise, but the quality drops. So consider church membership as a spiritual discipline that you need for your life. Not an optional extra. Discipline, discipleship are critical. And it happens in covenanted communities where people express their love and faithfulness to one another. It's the only place that can really happen meaningfully. And the fourth discipline this morning finds, we see that faith finds its assurance in the assembly of believers. Verse 25, y'all knew this was coming. Verse 25, it says, Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This fourth way, this fourth way in which faith finds its assurance is actually the assembly of believers. Really? Yes. Yes, indeed. Look how close we are to chapter 11, the faith chapter, right? There's so many people who preach, preach the faith chapter and neglect the practical resources that we have to encourage our faith. You can go online and watch YouTube videos to your heart's content 
from someone preaching on Hebrews 11. And all the while, they neglect to tell you that you actually can increase the substance and quality of your faith by being connected and committed to a local congregation. Many people have problems with their faith because they're not doing the spiritual disciplines. They're not truly connecting and rooting themselves and committing themselves to the spiritual discipline of the assembly of believers. Don't take lightly the value and power that's inherent in the assembly of believers. It's God's ordained spiritual discipline for you. Don't take it lightly, as if it's an optional extra. Regular, purposeful prioritization of the assembly of believers has always been a bellwether of where one is spiritually. It's certainly not the only indicator. I know that. Don't take my words out of context. But it is a significant bellwether. Maybe you've heard the old adage, sin will keep you from this book or this book will keep you from sin. We could adapt that to say, sin will keep you from the assembly or the assembly will keep you from sin. Why? Because sin causes you to want to hide from others. Frankly, if you're not looking at one another, singing to one another, hearing the word, you're placing yourself at risk of falling away. The gods of this world, the gods, the demons of this world want to draw you away from meaningful participation in the body of Christ. Satan is insidious in his designs. He can make the good things look like necessary things. And that's a lie. Good things are not necessary things. And before you know it, these become wedges that drive you away from a close relationship with your Heavenly Father. It becomes the catalyst that turns your heart away from God. Loved ones, please, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I know many of us in America don't have the freedom over their schedule. I understand that. There, is, there are some of us who don't have the freedom every Sunday because we have masters that require time of us. I know that. I rue the day. I, I, we should rue the day, though, that our government has turned away from protecting Sabbath worship. And I know that some of us have employment that requires us to work on Sundays to care for other people. I believe that those are necessary graces for the community at large. I understand that. But where you do have the freedom to schedule and adjust and prioritize the spiritual discipline of the assembly of believers, I would be such an unfaithful shepherd. If I didn't encourage you to find ways to reprioritize your life and spend corporate time with believers, it is so important for your faith. And here we're coming to the end. Here's, I've left it for the very end, this big idea. As you see the day drawing near, draw near to God and one another. 
even if doing so brings discomfort. This is the reason for prioritizing spiritual disciplines which foster the assurance of faith. You don't want to fall away, do you? You don't want to one day realize that, oh my goodness, I actually never had faith in the blood of Christ at all. You don't want to find yourself in hell, do you? If you and I are unwilling to rearrange our lives or have conversations with others, even if doing so brings discomfort, we have to ask ourselves, do we have a true heart? Are we born again? How can I say that? Because a living faith in the living God requires that we are not complacent. We cannot just float, like Eric said in his prayer. We cannot just float like a boat without any wind. The Holy Spirit has to propel it. Can you not even see the signs of the times? Are we blind to the signs of the times? Sometimes even unbelievers will look at the media and say, there's a collection of world powers growing. Something is aloof. Something is afoot. Even unbelievers see and wonder, but here's the difference. They don't do anything about it. Don't you know that we're almost home? We are almost home. Jesus is just on the horizon. He's coming again. We're coming up to Mount Cobb. Can't you just hold it a little bit longer? Oh, we're rounding the corner to, there's the Dollar General in Lake Ariel. We're almost home. Can you not just hold on a little bit longer and confess your sins to one another? Can you not just persevere a little bit longer? You may need to say no in order to be able to say yes to spiritual disciplines. Spending time with others, do so more as you see the day drawing nigh. You might need the midweek time of prayer and reflection in the word with other believers more than you even know. In fact, as we see the day drawing near, we need time with the body much more than we could ever know. It's coming just over the next hill. Look there in the distance. Christ is almost here. Loved ones, I, you know that the Lord Jesus loves you and gave his life for you. As your pastor, I love you too. And I want you to be found faithful. I want you to be overjoyed when the Lord returns. I believe that we are drawing closer. 
and it ought to make us willing to suffer discomfort for the sake of seeing him again. Let us pray.